0: From the newsroom of The Washington Post.
1: It's Robert Samuels from The Washington Post.
2: Post, this
3: is Sarah Kaplan.
2: Hi, this is Helahe Azadi with The Washington Post.
3: This is
1: Post
0: Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, March 2nd. Today, why more people than ever identify as LGBT, plus, trouble on The Bachelor and why it matters.
4: I'm constantly wondering what the size of the LGBT population is. In a lot of my reporting, I, I get asked, you know, who would this apply to? How, how big of a population are we talking about and how do they identify? And that's always been a tricky question to answer because there's really a, a huge lack of data on the LGBTQ population as a whole.
0: that's Samantha Schmidt. She covers gender and family issues for The Post. And last week, those questions that she gets asked all the time got a little bit easier to answer.
4: There was this big Gallup survey that was released recently that showed a huge increase in the number of Americans who identify as LGBT. They've asked this question before on surveys, and we've been able to say generally how many people identify as LGBT in the U.S., but we haven't had a very detailed breakdown on what that means and more specific uh, identifiers in terms of their sexual orientation and gender identity. But this survey gives us a bit more of that detail.
0: Sam spoke to producer Rennie Swernovski about that survey. And just a heads up, this conversation includes language that some people might find offensive.
2: Could you tell me more about the data that we've been seeing then from Gallup?
4: So this data comes from 15,000 interviews conducted over the course of 2020 with Americans over the age of 18. And the data really shows us that there's been a pretty marked increase in the number of Americans who identify as LGBT. In 2017, which was the last time we had survey data from Gallup on this, we learned that 4.5% of Americans identify as LGBT. But in 2020, 5.6% of U.S. adults identify as LGBT. And, and so who
2: who is driving that change? Is it like the younger Gen Z population that's driving the change? Uh, is it older people increasingly identifying in these groups?
4: It's very clear that the the biggest driver is Generation Z. We are seeing that one in six adults in Generation Z, so that's ages 18 through 23, identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender. And that is a significantly bigger share than the older generations.
2: And I imagine that's even an undercount right now, right? Because if this is only counting people 18 and above... A lot of Gen Z is much younger than 18, right? Do we imagine that in the
4: coming years, those numbers will continue to change even more? Right. I mean, when I think about Gen Z, I think about teenagers, people in high school, right? So if, if you think about all of these young Gen Z kids who are under 18 and the fact that they are increasingly coming out in their schools and in their families, uh, once they're adults, a lot of researchers are expecting that number to rise. And I, I think that that's what's going to be most fascinating about the years to come is how does that change that top line number of, of Americans who identify as LGBT?
2: And so breaking down the data a little bit further, are people identifying in one particular way more than others? Are there any sort of trends that you're seeing standing out?
4: So what I found fascinating was that among the people surveyed who said that they were LGBT, more than half of them identify as bisexual, while a quarter say they are gay, 12% say they are lesbian, 11% are transgender, and 3% as another term, as, as other. And I think it's super fascinating that in Generation Z, an even greater share of the LGBT community identify as bisexual, 72%. So this means that nearly 12% of all Gen Z adults identify as bisexual, whereas about 2% each identify as gay, lesbian, or transgender. And did you get a chance to talk to any of these young people who do identify as bisexual? And yeah, like what did they tell you? I talked to a few different bisexual teenagers and young people to try to get a sense of like what this means to them and how they see their generation kind of embracing, you know, this freedom to be who you are and to be attracted to whoever you want. And I talked to one young woman named Jenny, Jenny Granados Villatoro, and she's an 18 year old. She identifies as bisexual and gender fluid and she uses she pronouns as well as they pronouns. I use any pronouns.
5: Um, so, you know, whatever you'd like to refer to me as it works for me.
4: And she talked about how even in her really diverse LGBT friendly high school in uh, Maryland, it was pretty difficult for her to come out to her friends and family as
5: bisexual. I would have teachers that would make comments on it sometimes. I remember I was going to Stats one day and I had a teacher call me a, Are you one of those those dykes? And I was like, Oh, okay. And at the time, you know, I thought I tried to laugh it off and everything, you know, I just played it off like it was a joke because I had classmates around me and all these people and they were laughing too. And I didn't want them to see that vulnerable side of me. Her parents, who are
4: very devout Catholics from El Salvador. They have a hard time wrapping their heads around the concept.
5: And there was one point where my mom was like, this might, this would have been so much easier if you came out as lesbian. And I'm like, yeah, well, you know, I'm bi. So (laughs) unfortunately...
4: and when i when i talk to researchers who are experts on the lgbt community they say that you know a lot of people are are surprised that so many uh, lgbt people are bisexual but it really it really shouldn't be surprising there's still a lot of stigma uh, associated with the bisexual community and a lot of misunderstandings about the community and and a lot of this is rooted in in kind of messaging during the 20th century that really focused on you know, during the, the gay rights movement, there was really a focus on this kind of born this way mentality, this trying to push back on people who felt that this was just a choice, a lifestyle that, you know, it was really trying to get across the narrative that this is this is how they are. This is who they are. This is how they were born. You know, even today, we've kind of kept this narrative that, you know, you are either gay or you're straight. There's not really much in between. And even though that was super important to get across in order to fight for gay rights you know a lot of experts told me that we we need to move past this and and this survey is really showing us that we are past this that you know post same sex marriage there's really more of a liberation and this kind of idea that there's a whole spectrum of sexual diversity it's not just gay and straight and and that's also natural and and normal are there other trends you noticed in the data that we can learn from another thing that i found so interesting about The numbers regarding the bisexual community is that women are more likely than men to identify as bisexual. More than 4% of women identify as bisexual, while less than 2% of men identify as bisexual. And that's compared to 1% of women identifying as lesbian and less than 3% of men identifying as gay. And this is really consistent with other research from experts showing that the biggest driver of the growth in the LGBT community has been. Among bisexual women and girls, and it kind of draws the question of why why are more women and girls coming out as bisexual than men and boys? Is that because they're just more likely to be bisexual, that there are more bisexual girls, or is it because there's something in society that's giving them the freedom to come out as bisexual? And researchers have told me that this is really kind of rooted in this idea that it's more acceptable in society for girls to identify as bisexual. That's kind of more it's seen as more, okay for women to be bisexual than for boys. And this also applies to people who identify as non-binary. There are researchers who tell me that they're usually, they're more often than not coming across non-binary young people who are assigned female at birth rather than assigned male at birth. And it's just kind of this idea that it's, it's okay for somebody assigned female at birth to appear more masculine than for somebody assigned male at birth to appear feminine. And interestingly, this survey leaves a lot of gaps in terms of people who identify outside of these labels. And they did allow people to select a category as other, something other than LGBT, but it's hard to know exactly what that captures. And this doesn't really give us a sense of how many people identify as non-binary, which means you don't identify as male or female, or you identify as a, a bit of both. It's kind of a separate category altogether. And talking to people who study teenagers in particular this is increasingly common among teenagers to identify as non-binary. And I talked to a few different non-binary teenagers, and one of them was a teenager named Jasper Schwartz.
6: I live in the Silver Spring, Maryland area near DC. I'm a high school junior, and I use they, them pronouns.
4: And Jasper talked about how the vast majority of their friends also identify as queer in some way and this has just been totally normal throughout their childhood as more people have come out and more people have
6: normalized it it's becoming a lot more normal and it no longer has to be this huge conversation when i come out to people where i have to like educate them on exactly what it means to be nonbinary and why that is a real thing, actually, yes, i don't I find myself um defending my existence less, which is very nice,
4: and you know, just thinking about Jasper's life, like Jasper was only eight years old when same sex marriage became legal in their state. They were. 12 when they realized they were attracted to girls. And it was something that they talked about in health class. It was totally normal. And even by the time it was talked about in health class, Jasper already was familiar with those lessons because Jasper had seen it on Instagram, had been kind of growing up, scrolling through gay accounts on on social media and following transgender influencers on YouTube. When I was in seventh grade, I
6: followed this YouTuber named Miles McKenna, who made videos about being gay and like jokes and it was really lighthearted and fun. And at first he identified as a lesbian and around the same time that I was starting to question my gender, um, he came out as trans and started transitioning. And that was so important to see somebody that I looked up to going through the same thing that I was.
4: So this has just been a part of their life for uh, for so long. And it goes to show how the Internet has really brought so much of this information to so many young people and help them understand their own identity better.
2: Yeah, we definitely hear a lot about how the the Internet can introduce these concepts to people and sort of let them find their communities and let them like give them an opportunity to understand themselves better. But is there anything else that we think is behind the rise? Is there like actually a real shift in sexual orientation and gender identity going on? Or is there just like a greater willingness among young people to identify as LGBT based on like what they grew up seeing in the news and these maybe like
4: influencers
2: making them feel less alone? I I don't know.
4: Yeah, I think that's the real question here. And even Gallup's researchers were unable to answer that. They said it's possible that we have more people who these days identify as queer, but more likely scenario is that there's just more of a willingness to identify it in, in surveys, and to even be able to identify it in people's
5: own lives. I feel like people are fearing a little bit less just because they see that support is a lot more present um, in our society when it comes to the news, you know, social media, TikTok, all of this stuff. It definitely does make people a little bit more comfortable um, with the whole idea of coming out. I think the
6: pandemic has also had a major impact on how people are identifying. That's actually one of the biggest pushes behind all these people coming out as non-binary. Because I remember one of the things that was scariest was coming out at school, like a teacher calling me a different name and suddenly having to explain it to kids who I wasn't really friends with. I didn't really talk to normally. Like that was kind of intimidating. But now people are only really interacting with like their friends, their mutuals on Twitter, the people they follow on TikTok who are likely to be accepting. And I also think we've had so much more time on our hands to just sit and be with our thoughts and not be going from club to sport to school and homework. We've had so much more time to just sit and think and reflect. And I think when you give people the space to do that and also tools like TikTok that where people are having discussions about gender identity and the binary and social constructs, that mixed with people feeling safe because they're only interacting with people who make them feel safe, I think has really given way to a lot of people being able to question their gender and the binary and their sexuality in ways that they just haven't before.
4: I think that if you would have asked these same questions to teenagers back in two decades ago, we would have seen very different answers. And it begs the question of, are there people in older generations who, who do identify, you know, who, who are bisexual or who are queer in some way, but they don't have the labels for it or they don't have the language for it and they just haven't come to terms with it yet? It's really hard to say.
5: It was something that I was feeling through most of my high school years, but I didn't really know what it was, you know. Thankfully, because there's so many words out there now to actually pinpoint and put labels on and everything, it it helped me a lot.
4: And... I've even seen in in the time since my article came out, I've seen a lot of people on on social media saying, I'm sure our parents are bisexual and they don't even realize (laughs) it. I'm sure that there are people in the older generations who are who are bi and who have maybe been attracted to people of other genders, but are now married to a person of the opposite sex. And so they don't really put a label on it and. I think that that's just such a fascinating question. Of Over time, are we going to see more of a willingness to put language to these attractions and to these identities?
0: Samantha Schmidt covers gender and family issues for The Post. Renny Fornofsky is a producer for Post Reports.
1: This season on The Bachelor, uh, they announced that they were having the first Black Bachelor and his season has been airing since January. But Internet sleuths have gone and found the racist past of one of the contestants on the show. One of the contestants in particular, Rachel Kirkconnell, it was found that she had liked several racist pictures from her friends. She had dressed up in inappropriate ethnic-themed costumes, particularly a Native American Halloween costume, as well as she had attended a antebellum South-themed frat party. Um, So pictures of those began to surface, and so that has sort of called into question the motives and motivations of not only the Bachelor franchise, but of reality TV in general to seek out and promote These people that have this racist past. So there's a lot of controversy around the choices that led to this person being on the season. My name is Allie Barthwell. I'm a recapper for Vulture for The Bachelorette and other reality shows. And I'm a writer for Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. impossible task of being the first Black Bachelor. Not only are you on national TV, having your every move scrutinized by people like me, now this Black Bachelor is sort of a representative for the Black community in a way that he may not want to or feel prepared to really handle. In the past, race and racism usually hasn't featured On The Bachelor, because the casts have not been diverse. In the beginning seasons of The Bachelor, it was not surprising to have no women of color, no people of color anywhere sort of present in the franchise. There's also been a strong push toward having contestants and leads that are Christian and are very open about their Christian faith, and that often leads to evangelicals sort of being part of the show. So you have an environment where it's a white, conservative Christian cast. And so those values tend to bubble up and be present in the show. The Bachelor started first in 2002. That's
0: Emily Yar. She covers pop culture for The Post, and she is our resident Bachelor Nation expert. We asked her for a bit of background on this extremely popular
4: reality TV show. Alex. This is your last rose tonight. It's the final rose tonight. This is the
3: final rose And then after that, they realized that they should give, you know, a woman the chance to be the center of the show. So then came The Bachelorette. Tonight, the journey begins again. This time, it's one woman handing out roses to ladies. And then there have been multiple spinoffs, all produced by the same people, all airing on ABC. Correct me if I'm wrong, but
0: because uh, I, I don't really watch The Bachelor that much. But I my memory is that there haven't been any non-white figures of The Bachelor or Bachelorette, except for the one with Rachel Lindsay a few years ago, right? I remember that there was a black Bachelorette, and that was like a big deal.
6: I'm Rachel Lindsay.
0: I'm from Dallas, Texas, born and raised, and I'm an attorney. We
2: have a new
3: premise liability. So Rachel Lindsay was the first lead of color that they had ever cast, and that was in 2017. There had not been anyone else in the show's nearly two decade run. But then this past summer, ABC announced that Matt James was going to be the next Bachelor and the first Black Bachelor in franchise history.
1: My name's Matt James. I'm 28 years old and I'm The Bachelor.
3: I also
0: just find that funny from like a PR perspective. Maybe funny isn't the right word, but that it's like, you know, we're in this moment of national reckoning about violence by police and and sort of systemic oppression. And The Bachelor is like, we can fix that by... Having someone who is black be at the center of the bachelor. It feels like a like a I don't know, an interesting
3: solution to this moment. I don't know if what the show was expecting. Like maybe they would be congratulated for this. But yeah, a lot of people had the exact same reaction you did, which was, um, okay, this is like many years too late. And we get that you're trying to change this now. But at the same time, there are so many deeper issues on this show that kind of rushing forward and saying, Oh, look, here we cast a black lead on the show, maybe really didn't do much as they were expecting. I think what tends to happen in The Bachelor now is that things that happen outside of the show sometimes tend to consume all the drama and actually become more compelling or more controversial than what's actually happening on camera. And that's 100% what has happened in the last few weeks.
0: Oh, interesting. Wait, so what was going on off camera that started to affect what people were seeing at home?
3: There's a contestant named Rachel Kirkconnell. Hello.
6: Oh, my gosh. I am in trouble. You made it. I made it. I don't know how, you but hug? you are more good-looking in person. Oh, my God.
3: <laughs> and she is 24, and she's from Georgia. And she had posted something, I believe, on Instagram that kind of had, like, qanon type language in it. There was another instance of her liking a social media post that had the Confederate flag in it. But the main issue was there was a photo that came out of her when she was in college and she attended a sorority formal that was an antebellum old South party. Oh no! <laughs> oh, <God>. Yeah, <laughs> and this was taken in 2018. Wait, so you can, can you describe the photo? It's a huge group of sorority girls, kind of like I think they're on a lawn and they're all dressed up in these very like stereotypical, like Southern, like Gone with the Wind esque, exactly like Old South. I believe was like the the term they oh, uh, used to describe the party. So. This started going around and people were obviously very upset by this. Cause again, this was in 2018. Mm-hmm. Sometimes these things just circulate within like the bachelor social media worlds and on Reddit threads and the show can kind of ignore it. But at this point, like it was on Twitter, it was getting brought up so much mm-hmm. um, that finally the show's host, Chris Harrison felt that he had to address it. And this is just when things went completely off the rails.
4: I haven't heard Rachel speak on this yet. And until I actually hear this woman have a chance to speak, Who am I to say any of this? Um, You know, I saw a picture of her at a sorority party five years ago. And that's it. Like, boom. Like, okay, well, this this girl is in this book now and she's now in this group. And I'm like, really?
0: Chris Harrison said all of this to
3: Rachel Lindsay in an interview on Extra. And a couple of days later, he released a pretty long statement to his Instagram where he said that he was going to be stepping aside from the show um, because he didn't want to ruin this historical season with his actions. And he apologized. He said, you know, by excusing historical racism, I defended it. And he said he was ashamed over how uninformed and wrong he was. So, yeah, it's kind of not quite clear what that means, but it still remains to be seen um, when and if he'll return to the franchise.
0: I'm wondering if you think that what's happening right now on The Bachelor says something bigger about how some of these issues are being grappled with very publicly, either in TV or in Hollywood or the media or just like in the world.
3: Yeah, I think it definitely does. And that's what's so disappointing about how the producers have handled situations like this for so long because a lot of the burden then falls on contestants, um, you know, of color like Rachel Lindsay. Like she has had to go through these issues so many times and kind of be this spokesperson for this franchise. And I, and after the interview with Chris Harrison, she even said, she was like, I, after my contract is up, um, I'm done with this because she's still, you know, will stop by the show sometimes. She does their official podcast. And she was like, this is exhausting.
1: As more people of color have been contestants and have been leads, what the show has done is it will typically cast those people of color into stereotypical roles. Also on Rachel Lindsay's season, one of the, the contestants was from Baltimore and he didn't grow up in, you know, what a lot of people would describe as like a stable two-parent household but that was cast as a liability that he, that was something he had to explain and had to justify to Rachel about his family and about his past and they shot, <laughs> I remember they shot him sitting on a basketball court with like a rusty fence and they both were sitting on basketballs as he talked about how dangerous and how difficult his neighborhood was when that didn't seem to impact his life and was just sort of an incidental fact about him. So really f- focusing in on the parts of someone's backstory that might be exotic or scary or strange to a typical white audience. This is Ali Barthwell again.
0: She spoke to producer Jordan Marie Smith about how The Bachelor has let down Black contestants when they have featured them.
1: From your perspective, why do you think The Bachelor and The Bachelor franchise in general is kind of seeing this process of going through very publicly the idea of race and racism? I think The Bachelor is going through this process of understanding and exposing the racism that has been inherent in the show for so long now because people have the tools to talk about these things after the protests and the Black Lives Matter protests this summer. And in casting a Black lead, there is a different expectation for how a show should handle itself and the responsibility of a show to protect and support their Black lead. So anything that doesn't achieve that is going to be up for scrutiny. And so I think if you put a Black lead on your show and people find out that you didn't protect them by casting racist people, by casting conservative people, by casting people that have a history of this kind of problematic behavior, there's going to be a response to that. So what does what's happening with Bachelor Nation and the Bachelor franchise specifically say about the industry as a whole when it comes to like reality television? When it comes to reality television, the way I look at it is, Any system in which the people making decisions are white people catering to a white audience, you're going to end up with racism. Because this is clear that it's not about people's personal opinions. It's not about the relationships that are forming between the executives or the producers and the cast. It's about the decisions that are being made at the top about how to portray, support, and cater to people of color and white people and how there is a difference in those decisions that are being made. The things that we put on television, the things we put in our stories are a reflection of ourselves. So if we're creating television that tells you if you do something racist, that's okay as long as you have a good heart, millions of people are going to be absorbing that message and maybe not criticizing their own actions and their own behaviors. Um if we're putting out a television show that is subliminally sending the message that people of color are angry, are rude, are are destructive, are strange, are exotic, people are going to absorb that. Um if we're creating a television show where people of color do not see themselves as worthy of romantic love, of deserving of romantic love, that's going to have an impact on how they view themselves. Our pop culture and television, these reality shows, are us reflecting our values back and forth to each other. So it's an opportunity for us to examine our values, examine the things that we're putting into our minds and putting into our hearts and giving ourselves the opportunity to call out what we don't want to see anymore.
0: Emily Yar covers pop culture for The Post. Ali Barthwell is a writer who recaps The Bachelor for Vulture. We'll include a link to read her work at postreports.com. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. The pandemic has been dragging on for almost a year now. We want to hear how you are coping. Record a voice memo telling us who you are, where you live, and what you've been doing in the last year to find joy. Send it to postreports at washpost.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.